Back to the Forgecast. My name is Sam Towns. I'm Alex Norton. I'm Steve Calvert, aka Green Beetle. Yes, we have a fantastic new interviewee. But before we get into that, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. This week's Forgecast episode comes to you thanks to our mate Rob at Weber Abrasives, the place to go for all of your abrasive needs. Ferd, Cubitron, Norton Blaze, Seawat, you name it, he's got it. Head on over to abrasives.on.net to get in touch today. So, Steve, it is awesome to have you on the show. I'm very excited. I've been a fan of yours for quite a while. Oh, it's good to be here. I'm super excited. Yeah. Well, we'll um, hit you up for what you've been doing this week. Um, we'll, we'll go through the rounds as we normally do. Sam, what have you been up to this week? Uh, me, I've been uh, working on getting orders out. Um, I finished a little jeweler's hammer um, the other day for a for a customer who was building jewelry boxes, and she'd been trying to use a, a standard size claw hammer. Is that Kylie? <laughs> and ended up breaking a breaking a uh, jewelry box. Yeah, it was Kylie. Yeah. Yeah, she does really uh, nice so stuff. She, she she ordered a tiny hammer <laughs> for for that. Um, I've also been doing a lot more engraving. I'm working on my blacksmith's tree leaf, the international blacksmith's tree uh, submission. Um, and that's kind of involving a lot of engraving, and I'm doing a, a, a proud inlay, a, called a true inlay in Japanese, um, <clears throat> which is the first time I've ever done that, so I'm kind of taking it really slow. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's been gearing up for a new commission that I've just got given uh, that's going to be probably the biggest commission I've ever taken. Uh, lots of Damascus, lots of <laughs> lots of forging. Lots um, of Damascus. Uh, lots of Damascus, yeah. A couple, we got the right kilos. guest on the show for it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's uh, it's been, been a pretty full-on week just planning things and, and getting lots of little stuff out of the way. But uh, otherwise, relatively... Uh, boring, unfortunately. Just <laughs> lots of paperwork and lots of uh, sitting, staring at a wall, wondering how I'm going to actually do these things. Fair enough. How about yourself? I have um, actually just had an exciting event happen. Um, a certain someone in the uh, in the interview here sent me this hammer, which just arrived in the mail this morning. Um, it is gorgeous. Um, it's a a replacement for the original um, blade beveling hammer that he made for me. It weighs a little bit more this time. Um, but it's... I was shocked to find the original one that he sent me... Jeez, what is that now? Two years ago? Uh, yeah, yeah, about two years. Um, he engraved my touch mark in the back of it, but this one, he's inlaid copper in the back of it, um, yep. which is <laughs> is both awesome, but also a nod to my recent QMI work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it was an inspiration behind it, yeah. And it's I, got... Uh, that's the first got, inlay I've ever done. <laughs> and the, the, the traditionally canted head as well, which is perfect. And, uh, well, the head isn't canted, the actual face is canted, um, which is perfect for bladesmithing. So I am really stoked for that. Thanks very much, Sam, for sending me that. Um, and also about, what's that, like a kilo of Nordic gold. 
Actually, it's only 550 grams. Really? Maybe it's because it's so small yeah. it feels like it weighs more. <laughs> feels heavier, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm very excited about that. But yeah, outside of that um, bit of excitement, I uh, finished a chisel. Uh, it was my first go doing a socketed chisel all forged out. Um, and it came out pretty good. The handle I made out of 200-year-old Tasmanian blackwood. Um, and yeah i had to pull out the lathe for that it was still packed from the when i moved here like two years ago (laughs) so uh, that was fun Uh, but mainly the the main thing that i've been working on all week is um trying to get uh the commission for niels vandenberg finished um the mushroom Mm. knife that he ordered which um is absolutely kicking my ass um for people who haven't been following it is a um Kumai blade with twist Damascus spine uh, 15 and 20 cutting edge um, the guard and the butt cap are both twist Damascus as well um, the spacer is Tasmanian native cherry burl which is beautiful but you can only ever get a small amount of it at a time uh, just because the burls of native cherries are only about the size of a like a cantaloupe like a rock melon um and so I've only got enough for a spacer for it. But I wondered, since it's going to... It's a bit of me and it's going to Niels Vandenberg, I wanted to actually have an endemic Tasmanian species of wood there. Um, mm. And the rest of the handle is Blackheart Sassafras, which is not endemic to Tasmania, but the ones in Tasmania grow more than twice as large as any other species of Sassafras on the planet. Um, and they generate their own fungus which paints the inside of the wood with streaks of black and i thought since it's a mushroom knife um i figured that's pretty interesting to actually have um a handle that's painted by fungus Uh, so pretty um pretty rare now as well because they can't uh, harvest it anymore that's right it's quite a rare wood and some of the groves that not the trees themselves but the groves of trees have been dated to over ten thousand years old and so they've Mm, now now they've discovered that they have prevented any logging so there's only a limited amount of this left on the planet and um you know when when the black dragon commissions a knife from you you got to pull out all the stops so i used what little i have left um and (laughs) hashtag blame the black dragon yeah after teaching myself to make kumai and making this knife i did not want to risk ruining it with it uh putting my touch mark in it and getting it wrong so i actually have inlaid a stainless steel ringed mokumagane pin in the back of it to put my touch mark in that's cool um and so there's a lot going on on this knife really um but it's almost finished it's almost ready for glue up that's the the last part that's left is the the glue up uh and then the slow process of the proper application of tongue oil it's only had the initial soak of tongue oil on the handle um i've got a there's there's probably a week worth of tongue oil finishing to go on that thing and of course the bristles that go in the back of a mushroom knife have to be put into place which will also be terrifying so I put the edge on it this morning, and that was horrifyingly <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> this thing has Always been... Always harrowing. Oh, it's just so much... Weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of work in this thing and learning. Like, I did not know how to do Kumai when I started this. Um, and he only gave me a budget of $300, and I'm like, you're not getting a $300 knife. <laughs> <laughs> this is the last time I'm ever going to get a knife in front of that guy, so... Um, but it's kind of cool to finally have it this close to finished. Probably by the end of the week, it will be done. Um, and it's going to have a special case made for it. Um, my wife is helping me felt line the entire thing. And um, so it can be stored nicely. 
Uh, I was going to just do a sheath for it, and I thought, really, it, it needs a case. Nice little aged brass hinges and things make it look fancy. But that's that's been my world this week, really. Um, not much else to say about it, really. Um, what you about you, Steve? Great, you did a great QMI video. I, lo- I love that video. What's, oh, you're going to give it a go? Well, I don't know. I Aesthetically, I'm not sure QMI's my deal. I'm still, I think I still have to acclimate to it a little bit. Mm. I think I had heard that uh, including copper next to steel elements makes the steel rust more. Some, some Sam and I action. actually had a long talk about that <laughs> yesterday. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's a phenomenon called galvanic corrosion that... Um, yeah. But it's, it's really, it's one of those things that people... It, it sounds really fun to say, and so people get really excitable about saying it. The reality is it, it's... Um, you need the presence of zinc or uh, a zinc alloy to actually make it be a real threat in something like a knife. And also, it needs to be held in an electrolyte, uh, which sweat yeah. from your hand could work as an electrolyte quite well, but without the presence of zinc it would um the process would be so slow you'd be talking thousands of years and there have been copper inlaid pieces found in archaeological digs that have been there for many many hundreds of years that have had no galvanic corrosion form whatsoever uh simply because there's an absence of zinc well that's reassuring then i guess (laughs) yeah yeah all right so So i was going to ask too what uh what glue are you into these days what epoxy i'm trying to i'm going to switch up my epoxy game so i'm sort of taking notes what are you guys using i'm actually just using uh, araldite if uh, you get that over there uh, sam i know is expe- about to start experimenting with jflex uh gflex G-flex. Yeah. G-flex. Uh, yeah i just got some of that in i haven't used it yet i uh yeah i after talking to kyle Rohr a few times and him swearing by gflex uh, from west systems and gamico recently started stocking it uh, i decided to take the plunge mm. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna do that or Acro Glass, and I decided G Flex sounded a little more easy to easy to use, I guess. So I'm yeah, a uh, friend of mine, Bruce Barnett, uses Acro Glass, and he swears by it. But well, um, Acro Glass, <laughs> uh, Acro Glass is uh, resistant to heat, isn't it? So you can grind on it afterwards without fear of it releasing. Mm. It's also ridiculously expensive. Mm. Like it's yeah. even more expensive yeah. than <laughs> than um, G Flex. Yeah. Small amounts, like ninety dollars. Yep. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> well, I'm working on a, uh, a ball bearing. You know, I got a bunch of grease-covered bearings a couple <laughs> weeks ago, and I tried some different things with them. Some of it's worked out, some of it's not worked out, and I decided I tried a semi-plug weld slash canoe Damascus some uh, some of the round, you know, but the full bearings into some fifty-two one hundred. So I've I've got that underway, and I may have pulled it off yeah the most recent photos you put up on instagram look phenomenal yeah i'm sort of excited i think it'll uh as long as everything sort of centers up a little bit with more grinding and there's no delaminations anywhere i think it'll be cool it's got some 4600k powder in there for uh contrast with the 5200 steel and yeah i might pull it off it'd be be pretty cool yeah um, well, you've been known to work miracles in the past, so <laughs> I have every faith. Yeah, Sam and I are still spinning about the fact that you made um, Feather Pattern Damascus by hand. <laughs> yeah, well, did you know after that video, I, I got a press probably about a year later, 
And I've tried to make it with the press and failed. <laughs> I can, I've only tried once. I need to try again. But I was shocked. I was like, well, how did I how did I do this the first time? I think I got insanely lucky, but yeah, it was quite a little, quite a little experiment. Yeah. I, um, I only just tried feather pattern a couple of weeks ago for the first time and, uh, failed spectacularly. Yeah, D lamb city. Uh-huh. It uh, is difficult. Yeah. It is yeah. very difficult. It's no joke. You can, you can do a lot of work and get a long way into that pattern and fail miserably at that last weld. And it just all goes up in smoke. <laughs> yeah. It, it was pretty sad. <laughs> <laughs> I started with like a kilo and a half billet, you know, like a three pound billet, and I ended up with just enough steel to make one knife, and even then it still had D lambs in it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. That, uh, you use a lot of steel in that. Uh, people, that was one of the main comments in that video. It was like, how much steel did you use, and why did everything turn out so small? And I was like, oh, it just, uh, by the time you cut off the ends and weld stuff up and grind away stuff, it just all it goes goes pretty quick and do you ever get sure caught is. by surprise sometimes because you know uh, I, I just happened i did a damascus class with a student of mine recently and um every so often once in a blue moon you get really really lucky and the whole thing turns out and you lose maybe 10 percent, and you end up with this huge chunk and billet that you were not expecting uh, I, I had to strike for him to draw the thing out oh yeah i've i've never <laughs> i've never had that problem man i i'm on the it's rare but it happens it. i'm usually like <laughs> I'm cutting out bad bits and grinding away cracks and doing all kinds of stuff. My billets tend to vanish pretty quickly. (laughs) So uh, normally we do songs of the week, which Sam and I both forgot to mention ours. Um, Has there been a a song that has been hitting your playlist quite a bit this week, um, Steve? Yeah, yeah, there's been a couple. And it was a bit of a journey in and of itself because I was thinking about this. I know you guys do this bit, so I sort of prepared and I thought, well, you know what? I know they like the Eagles, and I know they're into uh, sea shanties. So I put those two together, and I was like, well, what about uh, Seven Bridges Road? That's sort of acapella, at least part yeah. of it. And it. That's not quite a sea yep. shanty, but it's the Eagles. And then I thought, well, it's not really bluesy enough. So I went on to uh, Willin' by Little Feet, which is just a real cool sort of bluesy song. Um, but I decided there's a couple of lyrics there that, sort of strike me as sort of strange and um sort of take me out of the mood so i but the the best version of that song i found that i liked was by the black crows on their chorology album 2010 and also on that album is uh, one of my all-time favorite songs by them a thorn in my pride which is probably where i'll stick thorn in my pride black crows if you can find an acoustic version that's great if you can find um, well, I think it's pretty easy to find a version with Adam McDougall playing keys, but if you can find an Eddie Harsh version, that's even better. But I, I love that song. All right, I haven't heard it. I'll have to look yeah. it up. Oh, yeah, check it out, yeah. Live Black Crows, just amazing. How about you, Sam? Excellent. Um, well, so I've, I've had a list running of, of all of that kind of stuff, but I did get requested to add this to the Forgecast playlist. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> it's kind of a joke uh, because I told everyone on a live stream that I'm a Rusty Cage fan um, and he is the person who originally came up with the Knife Game song oh right so so I have to add that to the collection mainly you know I'm a bladesmith so Knife Game makes sense I think we've Don't all had bandages on our fingers at some point 
<laughs> Honestly, yes. After watching Sadly. Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I, I, I remember my wife coming home and like I'm just quickly swaddling one of my fingers in, like, in paper towels. She's like, what were you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, nothing. What are these holes in the table? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't hurting your precious table. Yeah. When your wife checks the trash can and finds like bloody paper towels, you got, you got some explaining to do. My wife's like, why'd yeah. you do this time? Pretty much. I'm fine, baby. I'm fine. Yes, behind every male bladesmith is a, a woman rolling her eyes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wondering when the next uh, ER visit is, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, my song of the week is uh, tinged by a bit of sadness recently because one of the band members recently passed to COVID, um, which didn't really make the news, unfortunately, but um, anybody who enjoys 90s pop will... <laughs> <laughs> we'll remember the band for um, one particular song. The band is the Fountains of Wayne. Um, and the song that has been really hitting the repeat button uh, for me is Stacy's Mum. <laughs> mm-hmm. Really just a great all-round song. Um, the sort of thing that you could not release in this day and age um <laughs> probably not and you certainly can't reverse the genders you you wouldn't really have you know sung from a female perspective saying you know brendan's dad has got me feeling bad it just wouldn't work <laughs> <laughs> but you know if you were able to look at it through the lens of the 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 90s um it's a it's an adorable song really um and the music video that went with it i look at I look at everything through the lens of the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> it was a it was a good decade. Um, the yeah the the music video is pretty good too because you can tell that the mum has absolutely no idea what's going on. <laughs> yeah. poor teenage boy. We were, we were teenage boys once. We know what that's like. But uh, no, it's it's just an all round great song, and it's kind of timeless. Like it it doesn't um, seem dated at all, even if you listen to it now aside from the lyrics but um, yeah well yeah really top notch song uh, and I highly recommend checking it out if you haven't already so um, we have a couple of listener emails and uh, they are loquacious fellows but uh, I'll try and blast through them and um, Steve if you if you want to pitch in on answers go right ahead so the first one is from Nick, and he says, Hey boys, my name is Nick, and I have at last caught up on the full catalogue of Forgecast episodes. First of all, thank you for the knowledge and the edutainment. I'm 30 years old, and I'm finally about to begin my blacksmithing journey. I have wanted to pursue this magical craft since I was a kid, watching The Lord of the Rings and every fantasy film and video game under the sun. Although don't pay too much attention to that scene in Lord of the Rings where they reforge the sword that was broken. <laughs> yeah. you know. oh, that's not how forge welding works, guys. Anyway, he says, I always assumed blacksmithing in the modern day was not possible, too arcane and maybe even illegal with the fire and noise, etc. But with the support of my awesome wife and the knowledge provided by you fine gentlemen, it's nearly time to get started. We have bought our first home and we have been blessed enough to buy a plot with enough space for me to make some noise and smoke. I'm hoping to craft everything from hooks to knives to axes to hammers to you name it. I've read up on several books, the countless excellent YouTube channels, and of course the crown jewel being the Forgecast. 
I am beyond excited to implement what I've learned, and I feel that I have a wide arsenal of techniques and knowledge to draw upon thanks to you both. I plan to build a firebrick channel forge with a Japanese box bellows with homemade charcoal for the fuel. I love that I can make it all myself, but will likely tinker with a homemade gas forge in the future. I know the box bellows and charcoal will be a challenge, but what, uh, what a great one to take on. This leads me finally to my question. When setting up a traditional charcoal or Japanese forge, uh, what do you recommend for the diameter and layout of the twier, assuming this will be a side draft forge? I imagine the most efficient plan would be a T-shape where the top of the T lies in the bottom of the forge with several holes drilled in it. I feel that a simple pipe coming in from the side into the base of the fire may not be enough, but that is my very amateur opinion. Thanks, guys. Glad you're back from holiday and doing well. Keep up the great work. Nick. Well, thanks for writing in, Nick. That sounds like a uh, that wide-eyed state that we all started in before we got burnt the first few times. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, no, it's um, it's really cool when you finally realize that you have the ability to start set up at setting up and, and actually swinging a hammer. And I've got a, I've got a shout out. I actually have a video on my YouTube channel of how to build a Japanese box bellows. Well, it's more of a Chinese box bellows, but still, it's it's a it's a Fuego style a blower, bellows. and it's, you can you can do it with basic hand tools and basic materials that you can get from any hardware store. So check that out. Um, but. Yeah, I'll, I'll let Sam explain how um, Japanese forges are normally set up because I can I can hear the cogs going. The weave in him is screaming. I I have uh, a video on lining my uh, channel style forge, and uh, funnily enough, they are a side blast forge. Uh, the idea of putting a T in and having like a bunch of holes drilled in the bottom sounds like it would give you more heat but actually in reality what it'd do is give you more opportunities to clog up your air system um and especially if you can end up doing any forge welding in it having bottom blast isn't always the best uh, unless you've got a fairly large twier and a clinker breaker um because <clears throat> even if you don't use coal charcoal can still create clinker if you're using stuff like borax um because borax becomes uh, a slag uh, which then can turn into clinker at the bottom of fires and also melt the bottom of your forges. Um, yes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, Japanese Fuego um, originally had uh, a multi-tiered system in their floors and the tweer was actually uh, around two inches above the forge floor itself, blasting right into the center of a large heap of charcoal. Uh, in my forge, because it's a much smaller channel forge designed for stuff like, uh, you know, knives rather than swords, um, my, uh, Fuego, uh, Twier is about an inch off the floor, uh, and it's set into the clay, so the clay actually creates the Twier hole itself, and I use a 32 millimeter, uh, or inch and, I'm trying to think, like, that's an inch and a quarter, no, about an inch uh, and a half. No. Inch and a half, yeah. Inch and a half diameter internal uh, diameter pipe uh, for my twier on that. Uh, if you're wanting to make swords and stuff, I'd probably go for a two-inch uh, diameter twier, but you'd need a much bigger box bellows and stuff like that. There is um, a relationship between the size of your box bellows and the diameter of the, the twier. Yeah, yeah. I don't use a box bellows at the moment. I'm, I'm going to be building one uh, in the near future, but... Uh, at the moment, I just use a hairdryer in that one. Yes, the modern-day um, box bellows. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, um, a lot of it comes down to how you lay out the the charcoal and stuff like that. Um, actually, Island Blacksmith on on YouTube did a great video on how to prepare a uh, a, a forge for for using uh, like a Japanese style forge. Mm-hmm. Um, and Florist Postmas actually has done a good one as well. Yeah, it's it's very different to what you'd know of of um, Western style forges. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it's it is a um, it is an interesting topic and it's very in depth and I could talk about it for hours, but, uh, basically, yeah, it is side blast. Um, and that's, it makes it really simple to build because you can literally just build the side of the forge around the Twia. You don't have to worry about plumbing things in and stuff like that. And it makes it really easy to clear. Cause all you have to do is, uh, if the, the jet ends up getting, uh, clogged, you can literally just pull the bellows off and just ram a rod down the, <laughs> down the line and just, punch the uh punch the blockage out so colonoscopy style yeah (laughs) (laughs) give it a slag edema (laughs) that's it um but anyway yeah so um yeah that's uh, the box bellows and and the channel forge are one of the most simple uh forge builds you can do it doesn't require any kind of complicated welding or anything like that so yeah definitely a good way to go yeah anything you want to add to that steve um, I like propane. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah, this is a good reason. This is right here. This is a good example of why I like propane. <laughs> it sounds way yeah, too well. complicated for me. I, I wouldn't. I'd be lost. So. I don't know. I, I've seen you forge in a hole in the ground. Well, that, yeah, that's not a bad way to start, is it? I mean, if you have to, you, if you have to, you have to. It's like painted yours, really. You got you got to start there so that you can appreciate <laughs> when you've got a nice, you know, pass through double burner gas forge. That's right. <laughs> All right. So our next question is from Joel, uh, who has emailed in before um, and actually won our Forgecast challenge as well. Hmm. Uh, he says, hello, guys, it's me again. I know I keep asking questions, but I keep getting different answers on this one, so let me know if I'm being annoying. Okay, so in the winter time here, we get dumped on with snow, and the sliding door to the shop always gets frozen shut, which makes it hard to forge during the winter. But there is a walk-in door on one side and a double-wide walk-in door on the other side, which don't get frozen shut. My question is, are these doors enough ventilation for a double burner forge running for no more than two hours at a time max? A couple of details. The shop is about 20 foot by 40 foot and about 7 foot tall. I thought maybe I could use a fan around the ceiling to vent it outside. What do you guys think? I hope you're both doing well. Um, so, the I was actually going to post a video of this. I had the um, a beam of sunlight coming into my shed the other day right when i was using some clear coat some um aerosol clear coat on some pieces and i have my spraying station right up near the double doors at the far end of the shed which are about the width of the shed and i have a door open at the very other end so it creates like a wind tunnel because it is aligned in the prevailing wind direction i sprayed the clear coat and then walked down the other end of the shed and came back about 30 seconds later and that beam of sunlight showed that there was still a dense cloud of particulates hanging around where I had sprayed it, even though it was right next to an open door. And I thought, this is a perfect example of... like I was about to leave the shed, so I hadn't set up any fans or anything like that, which I normally would do. Um, But I thought it's a perfect example to take a video. And I took a video and I've forgotten to upload it to Instagram to actually show people this phenomenon. Um, And this has actually given me a really good reason to do that. 
Um, so I'll tag you in the post when I do upload this video because it's not about how many holes are in your shop. It's about the actual movement of air. And the holes, all they're doing is either allowing or restricting the movement of the air. You need air to be circulating. Um, so the however many holes you've got in the form of doors is irrelevant. The movement is everything. Yeah. I mean, some people go for, like, the extractor fans where they, you know, mount an extraction fan in the side of their shed and just have it sucking air out into the, uh, into the abyss. I have a giant King Chrome fan sitting in one corner of my shop that just runs 24-7 when I'm in there mm-hmm. uh, just to continue circulating air. I also get a lot of pass-through wind through mine, but, um, yeah, I, I like to make sure that I'm, I'm circulating. But from the dimensions, when I read the the um thing i don't think you're going to be at risk uh you know in, in for two hours like um the thing is that we're not running uh we're not running like petrol which creates a lot more carbon monoxide than uh gas forge does because uh lp gas and propane doesn't actually give off as much uh carbon monoxide as, as depends on the gas forge have you seen what alex steel is running <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it does. It does very much depend on volume. I, w- I will interject. <laughs> so, I, w- I will interject here. Most hardware stores nowadays sell carbon monoxide detectors that are very inexpensive, and you can just stick to your roof, and um, that should actually let you know whether or not it's working all right. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's another thing. Um, there is an easy way to tell if you're getting uh, too much carbon monoxide. Uh, your voice will deepen. You'll actually hear your voice get lower. Um, because carbon monoxide is actually heavier than air, uh, which is why it tends to sit around you. <laughs> it is. It is one of those things, though. That that particular symptom. It's sort of like if you're if you're peeing and it's yellow, you're already dehydrated. Um, if yes. your voice is deep, you're already in trouble with mm. carbon monoxide. It is a silent killer. Yes, even pays to be aware, but yeah. Uh, but you can get very inexpensively a carbon monoxide detector and also um, hardware stores do sometimes have these but anybody that sells equipment for RVs and caravans and things like that you can very cheaply buy uh, LPG leak detectors as well Uh, in any enclosed space that you're running a gas forge having both of these uh, bolted to your roof will save you potentially save your life but at least save you a hefty gas bill um, that's good, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. I of that. Steve, I know you work in an enclosed space with a gas forge. What, what do you have for your setup? Yeah, I mean, I I crack the door to the shop, and then I run a fan right under it. blows right on me while I'm forging. It's literally like three feet away from me, and um, that's what I rely on. You know, it's, it doesn't matter how cold it is or hot it is. It's, if I get cold forging, I get cold forging, but I definitely don't want to be like you say, undercirculated with uh, carbon monoxide, even if it's not a large amount. But, you know, standing mm. standing around a campfire will raise your carbon monoxide levels, not to a mm. dangerous amount, but it doesn't take a lot to to get into your system. And so I'd, it's not worth the risk. And as you mentioned, there's always the danger of leaks and other things. And so, yeah, I think from my perspective, the key is definitely to, to keep a fan going, no matter how many openings you have, as you said. Yeah, keep that movement in the air. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Joel, thanks Actually, for. Oh, yep. The closest I ever came to carbon monoxide poisoning was uh, running coal in my forge uh, on a still day mm-hmm. uh, for about four hours, and yep, then that and when I sat down, air. my 
my wife was like, um, your voice sounds really deep for some reason. I'm like, oh, that's not good. Yeah. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been inhaling sulfur hexafluoride or something. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks, thanks for emailing in, Joel. Um, stay safe. Yeah. Yes. Safety second. Yes, so as the listeners know, normally Sam and I have an inspiration of the week, but on guest episodes, we let the guests do the inspiring. So, um, uh, Steve, who who has been inspiring you recently? Well, I'm going to circle back to a guy that inspired me from the very beginning. Probably a year or two into my forging, I caught a hold of a YouTube video on the ABS channel, which isn't that active, of a guy named Rodrigo Sfredo. Mm-hmm. Um, from South America. He was the International Bladesmith of the Year, and they did a very nice video for him. And ever since I saw that video, I was like, man, that I want to be that. That's that's my jam right there. And he has a pretty active Facebook account. I don't think he does that much on Instagram, but I'm just always blown away by, I mean, just, just everything. His attention to every little piece. He's doing more engraving now, and his... Um, Handles and guards are getting more involved and intricate. And he's got that, you know, sort of... When I see the guys from South America, I think of um, Twist, Damascus, and I think of, like, these super elegant profiles um, that are just a little more curvy than the North American-style blades, but just super right on. They're, they're elegant and meaty, and he's just got all... He just brings it all together. He's a total package, and so... I circled back around to him recently, and I um, gosh, he's even from four years ago. He's just uh, progressed and amazing, amazing work. And then I, I also give a shout out to uh, an inspiration as far as you know, hard work and effort and sticking with it. There's a guy who takes after my own heart, making YouTube videos. Um, he makes a lot of knives. He's 14 years old. His name is Max Rangu, the Pigeon Forge. I don't know him personally. I can't speak to that, but I admire his effort and his drive. Um, he's clearly got the illness. I mean, he's just hammering something out all the time, it seems like. And I, to, to find that, you know, this craft at that age and just stick with it and make these videos. And, um, oh, he'll and be he's, unstoppable. Yeah, I think at that age, it's, it's just such an awesome thing to watch. And I, I can already see his progress, and it's just really cool. So shout out to uh, the Pigeon Forge. I'll have to check cool. him out. Yeah. Yeah, I heard of him. I'm definitely going to check him out. So, um, with with Rodrigo as your uh, inspiration, uh, are we going to see a Green Beetle keyhole integral at some point? I don't have the guts to try a keyhole. I want to. <laughs> and I, I keep hang on, hang on, hang on. You don't have the guts. You did Feather Damascus by hand. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. By hand. How, how am I going <laughs> to? I can't figure out how I'm going to do the keyhole exactly in all parts of it and get it straight up and down and. I'm sure I have to try it at some point, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, have you guys, yeah, have you guys I mean, ever looked at that? Have you guys ever done anything like that? I I have not. A friend of mine, um, Mark Sinclair, has been making one recently that I've kind of had a look at, and my mind boggles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, I've looked into how I would approach it, and I just basically came down to the idea of lots and lots and lots and lots of filing. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I like Sam have not tried it but I have actually put thought into how I would do it and the, the solution that I'm currently at with it is to actually make a die that is the negative of the keyhole uh, and mm. split off the steel and forge it around the die 
um, and then neaten it up with files uh, and then fit the handle That'd be to that. interesting. Yeah, hmm. that, that's, that's the solution that I've come up with. Whether it would work in practice, I have not tried it yet. Huh. Mm. You're welcome to take that one for free, though. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like so much work for a one-off knife. I mean, you'd be making the same key, yeah. keyhole every time. With a, mm. But uh, it's an interesting idea, though. Alex Steele did a keyhole um, a couple of years ago, and yeah. he the, the sort Chris, of walked yeah. through his process and how he changed things. And I think he started heating up the steel and doing some different things. And I've I've been thinking about that. This it's always circulating in the back of my mind. It'd be a fun project. Take some guts though. Yeah. So I, I used uh, Rodrigo as a, my inspiration a month a um, um, few months ago uh, when I saw that he'd done a keyhole integral uh, sword. Mm. Is that the one where he insets the uh, the stainless? Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like man's crazy. What, what's what's harder than making a keyhole? I'm going to make it twice. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, that yeah. is some crazy patience with that. So, um, if if Rodrigo is the one who sort of got you started in in doing this, what is it about the Damascus side of things that calls you so much? Well, that's a good question. I didn't really like Damascus when I first started. I I thought it was sort of, um, I thought it was a little bit gaudy, showy, tacky. And to me, I couldn't tell what was cheap Pakistani type Damascus versus sort of higher end, um, uh, cra- you know, artisan made, made high, high properly made. Yeah, correct, um, Damascus. And so for me, those two things went hand in hand, and I just. Every time I saw a piece of Damascus, I just thought cheap knife, and um, it took a while before I, be, you know, began to appreciate it. And then, when you realize that it adds a whole new dimension and a whole new artistic element to knife making, that you you can't really avoid it. Eventually, you have to make Damascus. You're just going to travel down that road eventually. And um, I had a we had a I had a store where I sold outdoors sporting good stuff and we had a, ni- a nice high-end knife cabinet we always tried to keep some customs around and we had an Aaron Wilburn feather Damascus blade and like I said we had it there just to have it I never liked Damascus but I'd look at it you know every day I'd go by and look at it and I oiled it a few times and I got to really sort of appreciate it and and pretty soon I was like oh I can see what people like about Damascus and so I've um, you know for me I think it's just the there's a lot of challenge to Damascus and infinite possibilities. And, and every piece of Damascus is truly unique. Um, there's definitely never two identical pieces. You couldn't do that if you tried. And so I think maybe that's sort of the calling of Damascus for me is, is the depth with which you can take it and make something completely your own. Yeah. And I, and I have a long, yeah. a long journey. I've tried to make mosaic Damascus several times. I can't seem to get that, <laughs> get that going. <laughs> so I've got a long way to go, but I'm excited to, to take that journey. It's going to be fun. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you've sort in, of, Oh, go for it, Sam. No, no, you're good. I was just going to say, <laughs> I mean, you've, the reason I ask is because you've kind of got a reputation now on YouTube, whether you're aware of it or not, is you're the guy that does the crazy Damascus experiments. Uh, you know, it's, um, it's just how it goes. So the mosaic exploration will fit into that perfectly because every time I see one of your videos, it's like, I it's a, one of those things, there's only a few channels, a handful of channels that when I see that a certain YouTuber has put out a video, I sort of drop everything and watch it. 
um, and yours has become one of those because I've, I've been working with Damascus a lot lately, but the things that you do with Damascus uh, are next level. I mean, even if they, um, they might not end up being one of those mass appeal style things like everybody loves Mosaic Damascus, but not everybody would want a knife that's got entire you know, wheel bearings um, perfectly silhouetted. <laughs> but the notion of doing it is, is not everybody would ever actually think to do that or, or uh, let alone have the actual guts to, to give it a go and then keep at it until it gets right. Um, and so do you have, uh, out of all of the weird and wonderful experimentations, uh, like my favorite that you've ever done was the springs, the springs inside, springs inside, springs. Uh, but do you have a favorite experiment that you've done that has sort of stood out for you that you just really enjoyed doing? I really like the um, the birdshot stuff. I've done a couple birdshot knives, and the first one was in a shotgun barrel as the canister, which mm-hmm. I just I thought that was brilliant. I think I didn't. I'm not sure that many people appreciated it as much as I did, but um, I did. <laughs> I thought it was great. I wasn't sure. It also didn't have a very usable edge because the shot went straight to the edge, um, which is sort of the a lot of my early canister knives didn't they were just sort of art knives they didn't give a lot of consideration to being all that usable but the overall effect on that knife was really nice and um i've used the shot now in a little bird and trout knife experiment and again on that hog hunter where i thought it turned out really nice and so i think of i think that's probably one of my my favorites using that shot and uh, the fish hooks turned out really good i haven't really gone back to that but Canister is obviously a big deal to me and um, maybe a little bit gimmicky in some regards, but you can just do so many things. I mean, if the goal, the thing I like about it is, it, is that you can bring and reclaim these steels or these ideas and steel products or something special to someone or in the case of ball bearings, you know, maybe you have a job where you use ball bearings or your skateboarder or what, you know, whatever. You can bring meaning to the knife um, by the materials you use and the canister mat just allows you that vehicle in so many cases where you otherwise, you know, unless you're sure app would have a really hard time incorporating that steel. And so I, that's one of the things I love about canisters. It just opens up a, um, a whole new world of sort of possibilities. And so it's funny it. you actually mentioned Shurap. Um, the, you, you were mentioning how, like with the bird shock reaching all the way to the edge. Have you ever done something like that and then thought, hey, why don't I just do a Shurap and sort of sand my it around something usable or, or stack it onto something to be able to um, have that pattern on the spine but have a functional cutting edge? Yeah, I've, I've tried that a few times. I think there's a few knives I've done that type of idea with. You know, you can definitely clad a centerpiece um like sand my as you're saying or you can just weld it mm. along the cutting edge which i think is pretty awesome i don't know how tough that is in a chopper i, I suppose it's all right um but yeah i think there's a whole a whole uh whole bunch of ways to make something functional out of that stuff um i have to you know it's just something you have to consider are you going to do that inside the can for example or are you just going to weld it up as one piece inside mm. the can that, that sort of brings on its own problems because the blade material is doesn't compact like the powder obviously does and whatever other materials in there might deform a little bit deform the blade and um, take some consideration whether or not you forge the canister first grind it and put a blade on it afterwards or do it all at once or um, yeah so I think it takes some thought but as long as it can be done as you point out 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't uh, attempted Canister. I've had a bunch of people ask me if, if I'm going to, and I'm like, I'm not sure. Because... <laughs> It seems like a lot of work. I, it's not, I like it's the, not that. I like the appeal. I like the appeal of doing it by hand without a press, um, a small canister. It's um, I know it's a bit of work, and but uh, you've done it. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. That's how I started out doing it. I, uh, the press is just a phenomenal tool. It's made it so much easier. Um, especially, I'm 47 now, and I, you get to an age where swinging a hammer for an hour, two hours, three hours at a time, just starts to feel a little less reasonable <laughs> you know so <laughs> your joints your joints just don't you know as you get older aren't, aren't aren't all that into it anymore and so there's less enthusiasm i think so having a press around makes a lot of these projects doable but you, sh- you guys should try canisters really building the canister is probably the hardest part of canisters getting a, you know getting a canister that's going to stay together but uh you should try it it's really not that bad mm. yeah i'm not, definitely gonna have to give it a shot in the next uh, in the next few months yeah. um I, I keep watching your videos actually one of the first videos i ever watched of yours years and years ago was the fish hooks uh knife uh yeah. that and the um the rasp the rasp and railroad spike knife that yeah. you had. those are great those are great <laughs> knives i love those knives i got really so, fortunate yeah. my youtube career was um i was at the time like doing reviews of knives and things and um, just sort of lost and I made a cable knife that went viral and um, followed it with a fish hook knife. I got very fortunate you know I don't, I could not replicate that success in today's you know YouTube environment. It's way too sophisticated mm-hmm. but I just happened to have some of this legacy effect from the early YouTube days and having these, a couple of good videos that were successful and that's carried that whole thing forward but um yeah. yeah, but the the quality of your content has always been, you know, pretty good. Yeah, you know, in in the scheme of things, even it keeps up with you know modern creators quite well. Uh, um, I appreciate that. I work. It's hard, you know. If you you guys make your own videos, I mean, if when you're like a one man show, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's, yeah, you know, it's in the earlier days of my channel, I used to put in the effort and and you know carry a tripod around and reposition it all the time to get the lighting right and all that sort of thing and nowadays it's just <laughs> don't don't yeah. care enough to do that it's too much work there's not enough hours in the day yeah, yeah I've, I've i've taken a month and a half break off of youtube um i just had to deal with my own personal mental health and stuff like that and um i'm <laughs> i i keep thinking about what i'm going to do for my vi- next video when i come back and it, the the idea of filming the whole process terrifies me because it yeah. just doubles, triples the time. It does. It's remarkable. You you every once in a while, you know, I don't. I have a regular job and a family, and so I'm very much a hobbyist. Mm. And a large part of the hobby is taken up by filming and editing and stuff. But every once in a while, I get to make a knife and not film it. And I'm always just amazed at how much quicker everything goes. And I just, you know. <laughs> It's such a relief, and then when the thought of going back to, you know, as you said, positioning cameras and lights just turns into a real drag, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and you've actually mentioned a, a couple of times in your videos that you are on limited time with how much you can dedicate to the craft. Um, do you have, like, a crazy dream project that you wish you had the time to do? Like, you kind of, the, the part of your, back of your mind wants to just sort of take a month off work and, and uh, knock it out? You know, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever put that much thought into it. I would love, <laughs> I would love to get into engraving, 
and really spend some time learning that, find some classes and go take some classes. And, but the reason I can't do that is that I, it's so time consuming to start out to learn it properly. I feel like I, um, it would, I don't have the time to do that and make knives and make videos. And so that's probably what I would do if I had all that extra time. Mm. Sam's going through that right now, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, I do traditional Japanese style engraving. Um, been teaching myself basically and making all my own tools. It's been a lot of fun, but it does take a lot of time. Is it a pretty steep learning curve, huh? Oh yeah, 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 yeah massive. Um, you know, I first started out just doing basic lettering and stuff, but my my dream was to get into character um, character engraving. So I ended up. Uh, engraving stuff like this uh, people can't be listening won't be able to hear it but uh, they will know of the gecko hammer the gecko hammer yeah it's pretty good which is famous on my on my twitch streams <laughs> um, but yeah so uh, I, I wanted to get into yeah deep relief engraving so um, that's where I've kind of been focusing my energies but I have been moving into stuff like inlay and stuff like that uh, actually Alex's hammer was the first uh, inlay I've ever done uh, and I did both Tenzogan, which is the dot inlay, and uh, and uh, uh, I can't remember the uh, flush inlay, the word for flush inlay, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. And it, but it is massive, steep, massively steep learning curve, and I'm still a, a nubile when it comes to yeah. <laughs> comes to engraving. It's it's amazing how much time you can put into it and um, not be a master engraver or at a at a very proficient level you know I, I hear people talk about all the time they've been doing it for a decade and they're still not where they want to be and it's uh seems intimidating plus yeah plus you have to yeah. you have to be a bit of an artist do you not i mean you have to sort of be able to draw out patterns ahead of time and and lay out things correctly yeah i mean uh, so it depends on and on what like kind of avenue you want to take for lettering and stuff like that you can go the easy route and use like computer generated lettering um, and then just use that as your stencil. Um, a lot of engravers these days do their designs on, like, in paint or, you know, in CAD or something like that to get their uh, drawing so that then they can transfer that onto things. Because I'm a massive Luddite and a traditionalist, I tend to hand draw a lot of my engravings and stuff like that. Uh, I find that the little flaws and idiosyncrasies that come with hand drawing things tends to, you know, make it more... Uh, real mm. for me um, <laughs> but yeah it, it does require somewhat of an artistic kind of uh, taste and even when you get a really good outline and stuff like that and uh, it's drawn really well actually being able to engrave it so that the uh, the idea comes to life in the engraving is actually quite difficult mm. yeah it looks it looks terribly yeah. terribly hard to me <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, I'm I'm doing hammer and chisel engraving, so it's a it's, it's a little bit more kind of um, hand eye than uh, using a, a push uh, like a pneumatic graver, mm. uh, which you know, it, still using a pneumatic graver is still quite difficult, but um, it you don't have to worry about coordinating both hands. Right. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to stay. I mean. Uh, the other the other idea is that you're hunched over for hours at a time, and I just think about my spine and all kinds of stuff. And I don't know. You guys did a whole show on ergonomics, and um, you had a physiotherapist or someone. I, I listened. That was to the show. yeah. It was yeah. Anthony. It was a fascinating show. It was really good. Yeah. 
people need to check that out because that stuff is real. I've been, yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. I, I, I did that uh, video collab with him on my channel of uh, like a quick little three or four minute routine to do before you start forging to sort of loosen your body up. And it, I've been doing it ever since. I did the video, didn't, didn't just do it for show. I've been actually applying it to my work and I've noticed a dramatic difference and it's kind of been terrifying of what I've been <laughs> not doing or what, what things I've been doing to my body by not doing that all this time. Yeah, I was. I, I started doing it after that episode and uh, I was actually a, the same, a little bit terrified that I that I hadn't, been doing it before Mm. yeah um, so um with the engraving pursuit uh, that you've you've got uh sort of sitting in the back of your mind um i suppose a a really good way to sort of branch into that um a smaller way than going sort of balls to the wall full tilt at it would be to start incorporating into some of your projects that you're doing you know like um engraved guards etc um do you have any sort of plans to sort of sneak it in in any way or do you are you the sort of guy that needs to actually have it well practiced before you start applying it to projects mm, i i wish i could say yes i've been practicing drawing and designing and um leaves and vines primarily and so that's sort of my approach when i don't have the time or tooling or knowledge is just well this is easy to, to at least study this aspect of engraving. So that's sort of what I've been doing on and off is trying to draw some patterns and develop my own style. But mm-hmm. I, I would love to try. I mean, it's, it's literally, I don't even know exactly where to start. I've tried, like I've tried practicing hammer and chisel curves on mild steel and stuff like that. And I, I just cannot even get to anything that would be usable on a guard. So it's, it's something where someone is really just going to have to show me. Like I'm just going to have to go learn in someone's physical presence how to do it correctly. I, I don't want to start down the path with bad habits. I think that would just set me yeah. back. So you, you need to fly across and, and do a second collab with Uri Tukman, but do it in yeah. person. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I'd love that. Love that guy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's amazing. And the the he does a very different style of engraving to what Sam's doing. Um, and both of them, I think, have their, their pros and cons. Um, the only types that I've ever tried is more the Uri Dukman style, uh, just using a couple of gravers and, you know, just tap, tap, tap away. And I'm, I'm terrible at it myself. Um, I'm, I'm the same, in the same sort of camp as you. I think if I was actually sat with somebody, with them showing me, um, as I, I say to students all the time, like you, you could watch a video on this, but most of learning isn't showing what to do. It's being told what you're doing wrong. That's yeah. how you learn. Exactly. Yeah, and sometimes you just need a person there. <laughs> but so um, something I wanted to touch on while we had you here, Steve, was um, I, I was absolutely fascinated with your experimenting with carburization of iron and mild mm. steel. Because one the, of my with favorite the tums? videos, yeah, <laughs> with the tums. <laughs> one of my favorite videos of yours was the uh, the frontier knife. Um, that you made out of the wagon t- wagon tires. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and so, like, you know, I was just wondering, like, what inspired you to get into the carburization? Hmm. Well, I had to think back. I think it was a video on a. Um, I was looking at carburization with sugar. I think, and uh, you know, whether or not the World War Two engineers could dip their shears in a packet of sugar after heating it up. 
and carburize them and make them tougher and more effective on wire i think was the i think i was checking that out on a video and i got to thinking well that was a colossal failure that obviously doesn't work what does it take you start reading about you know box hardening and carburization and all that stuff and i said well man i don't see i don't see anyone trying this stuff and it certainly expands the number of steels uh, you can use to forge a knife with mm. and, and again bringing in that aspect of the the former life of the steel and does that add meaning to your work and and um so i think it was just sort of an interest in that and uh there's a lot to that i'm not sure i really always did everything very well um i would love i tried to make blister steel a couple times i, I could not make it i don't i'm not sure exactly what i was doing wrong but um you know, I, I love the idea of, of, of case hardening and, and taking that stuff that you can't otherwise make a blade out of and trying to make something. I, you know, who knows what you actually end up with, <laughs> you know, as far as yeah. carbon <laughs> content and stuff like that. But always a lot of fun. You know, I went back. I, I was trying to sort of go back about a year ago to that to the Tums knife, and I was going to actually make a pharmacy knife where I went to a pharmacy and got iron supplements extracted the, <laughs> extracted the iron from the iron supplements and then carburized it and uh i'm sure i would have ended up with a tiny knife because the amount of iron supplements you'd need would be outrageous but i was posting on like chemistry forums like how do i how do i reduce this iron oxide from this iron supplement and how do i extract an aqueous solutions and i was posting <laughs> trying to get people to interact and i never really got anyone to point me Anything maybe you should, maybe you should uh, do a collaboration with Nile Red on YouTube. Have you seen his that? channel? No. Nile Nile Red does incredible chemistry videos. He's a young bloke. He'd be in his twenties or, or either that, or he's got a you know a, amazing genetics and he's in his thirties. Um, but he's just an absolute chemistry genius, and he does things like uh, extracting caffeine out of Red Bull and then uh, making decaffeinated Red Bull and and things oh, like that. Cool. But he's got this crazy chemistry setup and his knowledge of how it all works on a deep molecular level is just phenomenal and he has a really great way of presenting it in a way that morons like me that don't know anything uh, can actually follow along <laughs> with what he's doing but some of the things that he has achieved just through chemistry tricks have been incredible but that would be a that'd be a hell of a uh, you know you just ship him boxes of pills and say extract <laughs> the raw elements of this and i'll forge it into a knife he would he would probably go for that Oh, that, I'm I'm betting he would. That would be hilarious. Yeah, that yeah. Cause he's he's done he's done gold and bismuth and all kinds of stuff. He he actually extracted bismuth metal from Pepto Bismol. Oh my gosh! So, <laughs> yeah, so he's he's done some crazy stuff and yeah, genuinely I, entertaining to watch. I need to hit him up then. I'll I'll uh yeah I'll look for that. That'd be cool. I think it's. I think that product's got legs until someone tells you that it's going to take like three million bottles of uh, iron sulfate or whatever, and then it would die pretty quick. But I don't know if it would take. I mean, most of those pills are filler. That's the other thing. There's not actually that much iron in any given pill. It's mostly like filler stuff. But, yeah, uh, it would be fascinating. Yeah. Well, at least you're not doing. You're not extracting the iron out of your blood, and you've got to send him like <laughs> three quarts of your blood. Yeah. Really. That um, I mean, speaking of collaborations, you, you're kind of known for doing a few out there. Um, is there anyone that you're looking to collab with that you're, you're hoping to one day? Um, I want to do another one with Yuri Tuckman for sure, and mm. um, 
There's a couple of other guys. Dies in every film. When his channel was really young, he was talking about doing a collab, and I don't. We never. It was a timing thing. We we couldn't make it work, and I think he got busy with stuff, and I got busy with stuff. But I really like that guy a lot. There's uh, there's anyone. I'll I'll really collab with just about anyone who gets in touch with me. Uh, Yellis Cutlery and I are sort of talking about some stuff right now, and um, I'm not really all that concerned with how big anyone's channel is or their Instagram account, you know, how many followers or, um, my only criteria is that you have to demonstrate you're reliable in some way. So like with mm. emails or conversation or something like that, cause you don't want to get, you know, a couple of weeks into a project and, and have the other guys sort get of, ghosted. Yeah, it yeah. goes nowhere. Yeah. And then, then that they have realistic expectations. Like if you, I think many people reach out for a collaboration because they think it's going to be instant success for their YouTube channel or Instagram account. And I'm, <laughs> I'm not, that yeah. big, not that big a channel, but, um, bigger than some people. And I always tell them, you know, I go and look at their channel and they've got a couple of knife making videos, a couple of videos of them in a parking lot, a couple of videos of, them, <laughs> you know, trying a new blender. And you're just sort of like, well, I'm not sure what your channel is about. And, you know, if you could, Let's say we do a collaboration and it brings thirty thousand viewers to your channel. Are they going to stick around? If you know, are you, is this what you want those thirty thousand people to see? Is this channel? Why don't you like focus? Why don't you prove your equipment, your editing skills? Get a string of videos that you want people to see so that they'll stay subscribed for the next one, and then then come back. Let's collaborate. Um, you know, I don't I don't care how big your channel is at the time, but I want the collaboration to be worthwhile for whoever. I do it with and you know for me personally when I found that if I reach out to people with a, a better you know uh, subscriber count I don't really get much response I haven't done that a lot but I used to um, so it's not really me trying to step up but I would I'd love to help other people I've done collabs with small channels it doesn't really matter to me as long as they're as long as it's going to help them you know if it's not going to help them I'm not sure it's worthwhile mm. um, well they need a, a large part of that is them helping themselves yeah, yeah yeah i mean you know it's like if you have one you have one magic wand you can wave it once bring x number of viewers to your channel is now when you want to use the wand probably not mm. let's <laughs> yeah. work on these things first and then let's wave a wand and we'll get it cranked up and and see what we can do and the, and the other thing i have to be honest with is that i think probably less I mean, I think maybe one in three collaborations ends up um, significantly helping another channel. You know what I mean? Like, there's, mm-hmm. they're surprisingly not as effective as people think uh, for whatever reason, you know. Maybe that's my maybe yeah, that's I my mean, fault. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, anytime I've done a collaboration, it's not been in the spirit of trying to grow channels. It's more just been... You know, it's fun to collaborate yeah. with people. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. sort of uh, you know really wanting to work with another individual that you would through no other means would ever get to work with. Right. Yeah. Well, that's mm. a good that's so, a good point. Maybe you just have to do it for the right reasons, and uh, it'll reach the right people, and that's the best thing you can hope for. Yeah, it's a bit like the collaboration you did with Uri. Is that you both had you know well known channels, and and it was really cool to see two people who otherwise would not cross disciplines very much actually work together to create this beautiful thing and watch it come together from both ends it was it was a from a viewer's perspective it was quite quite interesting i love I loved his work I, you and I talked before the interview how much we like his channel and 
how creative he is and watching him you know work with that and make the sheath and everything is just oh i just loved it that guy i watch his channel all day long i wish there were a thousand yuri tuckmans on youtube <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes so I mean, we'll have to tag him. We'll have to tag him in this episode. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the, the the Uri Salabation episode. Um, so I've got one last question for you. I don't know about Sam, but um, you've done some pretty crazy experiments. Is there one that stands out as being particularly nightmarish? You know, more so than you let on in the video. Uh, one that sort of had you in the fetal position in the corner of your workshop (laughs) (laughs) telling the wife and kids go away don't look at me (laughs) (laughs) well um i don't know let me go back i'm gonna pull up my my channel right now and look they all i mean i try to be pretty honest (laughs) with videos that aren't going well um they all have their challenges. The problem is... I, I'm just having images of you having Vietnam flashbacks <laughs> during making the fuller on that sword. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, that was such... I was so naive to think that that was a good idea. I was going to hand file that fuller. Uh, oh, my gosh. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to pull up my, my little library here. Um... Well, 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 while we're waiting, I'll have to admit I actually watched more of that hand sanding video than I care to admit. <laughs> uh, yes, me too. <laughs> I didn't expect I would. I didn't go in there with the intent to. <laughs> I was just, I was just sitting there critiquing his hand sanding style. You know. <laughs> you know, I I thought about doing a ten hour video where I actually just do like one back and forth and then loop it a bunch. So it's just like yep. <laughs> and just do a straight ten hour thing just to say that I I could. You know, I I, don't, I think yeah. the stainless sand my gave me a lot of fits. I mean, there's there's always things that don't go right. Yeah, and, um, I remember that. I'm uh my videos are. I hope people appreciate that usually when I'm making a video it's the first time I'm trying something or hmm. maybe the second attempt of the first time I'm trying something so I you know um, I guess I can use that as an excuse as to why things usually don't go well but <laughs> well, I mean it's something that I've always enjoyed about your channel is that you've always been experimenting with new things and you know when you try something you're always honest about the fact that you're completely you know in the dark yeah uh, and that's super refreshing rather than having just a channel where they try and play it off like they've done this a million times and it's very obvious that they haven't. Yeah. <laughs> Look how perfect all of my work is. I got this in the yeah. first try. <laughs> well, you know, along those lines, um, it's really interesting. When I, when I first started, I'm not a big social media guy, so I, I just got on Instagram like this last year, for example. But um, YouTube was rather young, and there wasn't a whole lot of stuff. If you wanted to learn about knife making, you really had to buy a book, to be honest. You could watch some Walter Sorrell's videos and some Trollsky videos, and that was sort of about it. And I, I went through this period where the videos sort of became a little more popular, and um, I thought, well, gosh, maybe, maybe I'm doing some stuff right. And I, don't, I wouldn't say that I got cocky, but I... I definitely did not have an accurate view of my my skill set and one thing that's really opened my eyes is you know perusing facebook and instagram and all the new makers and watching alex Steele progress so quickly through knife making i remember his first knife but it'll really set you in your place i mean 
to some degree, it makes you wonder. I mean, it's always good to find your place and understand where you are, what you're doing right, what you need to do better, and, and get inspiration from other people. That's always a good thing. But do you guys ever find, like, when you're looking through Instagram and Facebook that it has, like, the opposite effect <laughs> where you, you just get depressed? <laughs> like, you're, oh, my gosh, I thought I was doing that. Very much so. That's, sometimes it's overwhelming, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I the in the last two years that I've been running my YouTube channel, I've, I've slowly been, you know, meeting uh, and getting to know some really, really popular makers who are ridiculously talented. And I see their stuff come up on my feed all the time. And although they've had, you know, years and years and years of experience on me, uh, it still hurts to look at their stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and yeah, you get new makers that are coming into the scene and, and because they've got access to such, you know, knowledge and a lot of them are utilizing it, which is great. I'm really happy that they are. But you see them after their first year and they're making stuff that, you know, I'm just learning to make now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's demoralizing. That's exactly it. Some of, the, some of these young guys are just phenoms. It's really amazing. We had um, uh, recently uh, another person that you've collabed with is Zane Birch, um, ZJB Knives. Mm -hmm. And um, he his work recently, like the, the cut and shoots that he's been doing, yeah, um, just Man. blows my mind. I, Absolutely. I, it I scares was, me. It does. I was thinking about him um, a couple of weeks ago. I was noticing the same thing on his Instagram feed. You can, you can see his progress over the – I mean, it hadn't been like six, eight months. He has mm, yep. he has come a very long way, and uh, that's it's really exciting to watch him. I I'm glued to his Instagram now because I'm like, what what is he gonna do next? But to, I uh, he 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 really impresses me. I'm glad you brought him up. That guy is mm, I mean yeah. he's sharp. I was I was surprised at how simplistic his setup is. Um, it's largely a carpentry workshop. Mm. Yeah, like given given the uh, the quality of his work, I was convinced that he had access to much better machinery than he does. Yeah. <laughs> you know who else is like that? Joshua Prince. You would think that he has um, mm. a lot of stuff. I was talking to him the other day, um, interviewing for Patreon subscribers, and um, he doesn't have a mill, for example. And you know, he, he no. just sort of got into uh, heavy machinery. But, you know, I was like, what What sort of tooling would you, if you could get anything, what would it be? And be, he said, oh, a mill. It's like, you don't have a mill? It looks like you have a mill. <laughs> you know? He's like, no, I, I do it all by hand. And I was like, gosh. It's a hell of a compliment, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's it. I've been uh, desperately wishing for a mill because I've been um, uh, sort of learning folding knives, uh, slip joint folders specifically. And um, whew, I'd love a mill right now. <laughs> I would really love a mill right now. <laughs> Yeah, I think we all would. Yeah. But I mean, it's 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 good in a way because it, it, you learn to do more with less. Like my my forge has no power in it at all, and so I can't have a press in there. It just it wouldn't. I'd have to sort of make a uh, like a log splitter press and then power it from a, a petrol engine to be able to run it. Mm. Um, so it's it's a good place to start because when you learn to do more with less, when you do finally do get the equipment, which, you know, I've, I've been slowly upgrading over the last couple of years and I know Sam started out with very, very little and worked his way up. Um, you, you sort of get that deeper appreciation and you learn a lot more about the why of, of what's happening instead of just, I mean, some people are very lucky and get to just go straight into it with a triple burner forge and a 20-ton press and off they go. 
Yeah. Um, some people get power hammers within their first six months of getting into it. It's crazy. Well, where I mean, people find the money. Along those lines, would you recommend that everyone make their first knife using a file jig or something like that, or a, you know what I mean? Just file their first knife and their bevels. Or I've, I've. It's never been like first knife, but I've always recommended that everyone that's getting to knife making do at least one knife where they make everything with hand tools. Mm-hmm. I like to say do a couple of classes um, because learning the, you know, going into some, being able to step into a world where all that equipment's already there with somebody showing you how to do it, 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 it'll show you what's really involved because, um, I mean, who hasn't had somebody in their workshop who has, you realize very quickly, has had a sort of rose-tinted glasses about what the process is like. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, oh, so, you know, first time to forge, what do you want to make? Oh, Claymore would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of... Mm. Pretty much. Um, classes, I'd, I'd say, would be a good place to start. But doing it with hand tools, I think, is, is sort of one of those um, sort of paying your dues thing that everyone should do uh, at, at least once, if not. I mean, we, we were actually talking to Jay Nielsen about this. Um, even he, every so often, just for his own um, you know mental state, will go back to doing everything with the bare minimum of tooling. Uh, just to see whether or not he can still bring the same level of quality with those minimal tools. And if he can't, he, he sort of um, reanalyzes it and studies a bit more and, and uh, tries to make sure he knows that why. And it's a good way to be, to be honest. Every, otherwise, you fly too high. You, you forget where you came from. Mm. Yeah. And, and on the subject of that, um, Steve, my, my final question for you um, is surrounding your journeyman knives. Have you have you started uh, working on those? I know you alluded to it in your Feather uh, Damascus video. Um, that you felt you were ready for journeyman. Yeah, well, I mean, <coughs> yes and no. So I, I did put together a couple more. And, you know, I think I'm going to have to redo the guard on at least one of them. Uh, I put together one with a, another one with a brass guard. I sort of reached out to some people, put some feelers out, and I think I put it up on Instagram. And the response I got was that brass is no class, and like not to. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I sort of put that one on the back burner. I've got a card that's sort of out there, and what I found is that um, it's very difficult for me to film those the making of those knives. And, and yeah, so you and need I, the focus. Yeah, exactly. You act, you absolutely do. And the, making those knives are a little bit harrowing. Like I, for some reason, I get much more uptight, and I second guess everything, and I have to sit down and think for like half an hour or an hour at a time, or just come back the next day with a clear head. I'm not sure exactly why that is, because it shouldn't. I think be that much different. The idea of sitting it in front of a panel of judges for it to be looked at. It's, it's yeah. the exact same reason that this mushroom knife for Niels Vandenberg has taken so long. That's right, yeah. If it was for anybody else, I wouldn't care, but it's going to be sitting in front of him, and your knives are going to be sat in front of the ABS board. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess that's it. So I've had a, I've sort of had to choose, am I going to keep making videos or sort of give up YouTube for three or four months and get these knives sort of squared away and you know I, I don't know I don't know that would work there comes a point where if you put that down picking it back up becomes a little bit challenging and you, you lose subscribers and followers and to some degree unfortunately social media stuff is a bit of a treadmill isn't it and um, yeah you gotta keep it running yeah. I mean even taking a month and a half off I'm you gotta struggling f- to get back in yeah, yeah you gotta feed that algorithm 
Yeah, you got to feed the beast for sure. What um, What about some sort of uh, like a vlog style, um, just progress updates where um, you're not really showing any of the processes that you've gone through, but more like a debrief after the fact of where you're at with things? Yeah, I mean, that would be, that'd be a, like a video diary of the, the journeyman knife um, process. Just sort of showing the knife in front of the camera as far as how far I am. Sort of like a work in progress video style type of thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I guess I... No, I definitely watch those. I can do that. I mean, I'm I'm currently... I was supposed to be going for my JS next year, but it uh, looks like I won't be able to make the trip. So um, <laughs> I've been putting off making my JS um, testing knives for, you know, ever. You have your, you have your jury <laughs> knives now now. squared away? Or? No, I haven't, I haven't got my jury knives yet. Um done yet so uh, that's something i've got to work on next year um and then i gotta do my assessment knife as well obviously uh, it's um yeah, it's one thing to like think about them and plan on them and, and it's sort of another thing to take the time carve out the time to pick them up and do them and um it's difficult i think covid but yeah it's got everyone running a little bit crazier too and i've, I've got home homeschooling <laughs> with the kids that i have to take care of from time to time and it's it's not. Sorry, I interrupted you. What were you going to say? No, no. It's, you're 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 exactly right about it being more you know nerve wracking to make the jury knives than it is any other knife that you make. Yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, Alex, are you, yeah, are you gonna are you gonna do journeyman stuff or ABS stuff, Alex? Or are you? I, I no, I, I I have no interest in following the ABS path at all. I, I'm not even a member of the Australian Knife Making Guild. I, I don't I don't like guilds. I don't like. Uh, it's it's just a personal thing with me. I don't like being under the auspices of somebody else. Mm. So I just I keep improving for myself and for um, the, everything that I learn. I transmit into my my videos to teach other people. That's that's my whole whole deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh, t- perfectly viable viable path these days, isn't it? I think there's a lot of really top tier makers who who don't really belong anywhere belong to anyone or any group um yeah, I've, yeah absolutely. I've, i'm always seeing the work of um neil kamamura mm-hmm. i don't think he's in the abs at all yeah not that um and his work is stunning yeah yeah there's, um, there's a lot of guys out there a, there yeah. seems to be yeah there's a lot of people sort of think that you, you got to be on that if you're taking it seriously you got to be on that path and i mean I, I have nothing but respect for the people who go into it it's just not for me um, it, it definitely won't slow down my my progress. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, some in some ways, it maybe not partaking frees you to, to sort of travel your own path and um, develop your own styles and skills and, and that suits your uh, suits your way of of life and business and support yourself better than than trying to fit into you know. Because I know in the ABS. They, you know, as far as jury knives, for example, they really stylistically really don't want you to get too far out on a limb. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's a there's a definite it's, look it's, to them. Yeah, it's funny because every journeyman I've ever spoken to has always told me, you know, go very simple, go very basic, clean. And then every mastersmith I've ever spoken to has gone, go nuts. Oh, we, <laughs> oh, go, really? Do whatever you want. Uh, we, we had uh, the, the pleasure to speak to mastersmith David Lish recently. I heard that, yeah. His knives, his knives are about as different as you can get. Mm. <laughs> they're, they're amazing. They're, they're absolutely unique. But um, 
yeah, definitely not the sort of ABS look that you're not you're used to seeing. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there is there is a definite ABS knife kind of <laughs> feel to certain knives. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, for sure. I'd never discourage anybody from going down the path, though. I mean, um, my my own personal feelings aside, there is a wealth of knowledge, an insane wealth of knowledge to be gotten through the ABS uh, and the classes that they run and the the resources that they have to offer um and if you want to fast track your learning and and you know get all that deep wisdom that's the place to go mm. they've got an underused forum on their website it's, it's it's a shame because if you ask a question there you'll get answers directly from master smiths which is really nice um mm. it, yeah i i keep forgetting that i'm a member on the on the forum yeah, i do too <laughs> I, i've been there a few times and then i go yeah, I, I go, oh, I should, who can I ask? And then I realized that the forum's there. Yeah. <laughs> I should use yeah. it. <laughs> so, Sam, you're you're sort of a um, historical buff type of guy. You you like to know the history of blades and stuff like that. I've, I've sort of heard you talking about Damascus and things like that. Um, I did a rant a while ago on people with, you know, pattern welding versus Damascus and things like that. I'd sort of be curious as to how you, how you come down, because I've heard you sort of speak to it, or, or at least somewhat, in the past. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you have a grasp, I think, of history and stuff that a lot of people know. What are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm no authority on it, and I, you know, can't hold up a degree that shows you that I've, I've, you know, studied it or anything like that, but I have spent a lot of time studying the history of knife making and stuff like that, and steel in general. The, the first references to Damascus Damascus steel as um, as far as we can find are mostly in relation to gun barrels um, spiral welded uh, gun barrels that were made for shotguns and stuff like that and muskets uh, in the early 1800s um, before that there there are, there are like uh, reports from Crusaders talking about, uh, swords made in or around Damascus that were, you know, of a certain quality, but they were never really referred to as Damascus steel um, swords. Um, you know, the the 1800s, the Victorian era, kind of ruined a lot of uh, things for people. Uh, in that, like, it's because of the Victorians that we thought that Vikings had horns on their helmets for a long time. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, because of the Victorians that we have a lot of different notions about certain things. And one of them was that Damascus steel was in relation to swords made out of woots, specifically from the Damascus, you know, and the, and the Aden Basin and, and around that area. Um, as far as it pertains to, like, the modern vernacular, they are, you know... Pattern welder steel is Damascus steel. Like it's uh, been used in ta- literature from the 1800s all the way through to now, have been referred to as Damascus or Damascene uh, steel. Mm. So, um, as far as like Woots being true Damascus, I, you know, we could argue that anything that's not, uh, you know, anything that's not made in Damascus is just sparkling steel. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know that kind of argument yeah. is it true Damascus if it's not made in Damascus um, as far as I'm concerned if people want to call pattern welded steel Damascus they can I do um, and most of the time if you're referring to Woots you call it Woots right. or you call right. it Woots Damascus yeah 
I sort of that's sort of my my take. I've been reading some more and more as I can, and uh, I just keep, I keep seeing people refer you know, distinguish the two by calling one true Damascus or one Oriental Damascus versus uh, pattern welded or whatever. And I've always I've, I've sort of yeah. come to the conclusion that given the number of things that re- were referred to as Damascus over time, that it's more of an aesthetic than a materials, you know, when Al Kindi or whoever described the water silked pattern or the trail of ants on the steel and call it Damascened. Yeah. He, d- he wasn't describing the chemical makeup of that sword. He was describing its aesthetic and, and you have, you have, yeah. And, you have and Chinese, that is right. Yeah, I mean, you have chi- what we Chinese find. cloth is referred to as Damasked in, from this time period too. And so you, that's my tilt. And I, yeah, and I mean, um, actually, the practice of koftgari, which is uh, silver onlay, mm-hmm. which yeah. is basically you chisel the surface, that's called damascening. Right. And, you know, um, if you look up damascening, a lot of the time you'll find how to inlay gold and silver into the surface of steel. Yeah, I think Anne Feuerbach talks about that in one of her articles, although I, my impression was that she preferred Damascus to refer to crucible steel and high carbon, ultra-carbon woots, but... But she also seemed to suggest that, as you point out, there's lots of things described as being damascened or damasked, including jewel-encrusted and all that stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it can be used so interchangeably right? <laughs> um, that I, I don't think that we need to set a true Damascus or the real Damascus. Um, normally, if someone's referring to Damascus, they're going to be referring to patent welded steel because that's how it's used colloquially. Right. It's, it's in the vernacular um, for centuries now, basically. it's Yeah, exactly. But, you know, over almost, two, almost 200 years, if not, you know, over 200 years, mm-hmm. uh, it has referred to patent welding. And so, therefore, it's it becomes kind of innocuous to then go, oh, no, the real Damascus is X. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's like so, facial, yeah, I mean, facial tissues being called Kleenex. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You know, um, or all sticky notes called being called post-its. Yeah, um, but yeah, I, I think when it comes down to it, if you need someone to clarify what them what they're saying, like if they say, "Oh, you know, this knife is made out of Damascus steel," and you're like, "Woots or pattern welded," then then you need to ask them that question. Right. But um, I don't think that it, it's such a necessary issue that we need to <laughs> get into massive arguments about what's real Damascus. Right. I get, uh, you know, never fail once a week or if, if I put out a video with Damascus in it, pattern welded Damascus, it's, you know, I just get a slurry of comments always never fails about that's not, that's <laughs> not Damascus. Uh, well, I understand, um, but it seems to be a relatively modern phenomenon. Like, you know, you're only in the last 10 to 20 years has it become a serious issue yeah um especially since the uh when uh, rick furrer did the secrets of the viking sword Ooh, documentary yeah the Ulfbert, yeah um and because they did a that video and because there was a lot of hype around woots as being this super steel of the the middle ages um people got more and more obsessed with it and so it became kind of like the katana mm. of the steel world where yeah, everyone's right. like, you yeah. know, katanas are the most amazing thing yeah. ever. So therefore, Woots is the most amazing thing ever. Right. Ooh, imagine a Woots katana. He'd <laughs> <laughs> be unstoppable. <laughs> Cut tanks in half with it. Well, yeah, that's, that's something Bennett Bronson 
points out in his article. He's this is one of the most. He's one of the my favorite reading about Woots is the Bennett Bronson article, which is hard to find. You can't really find it online, as far as I know. You have to write a librarian and get a PDF from uh, Archaeo Materials Journal. I think in nineteen, I don't remember eighty six or was it before that? I don't remember. But he he's a he was a skeptic, and he said the exact same thing you did. He said, well, you know, in the Victorian era. It was very much sort of a uh, what we would now call an echo chamber about anything from the Orient being extra valuable, this cultural obsession with with everything from the East, including steel, and that there was plenty of commercial interest in making Woots work. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, certainly the British were exposed to Woots through their exploits in India. And so, that you know, trying to make something commercially viable as far as Woots in Europe and things like that, that Probably there's a lot of mythology propagated and all that, and um, at any rate, been a- yeah, well, they just like to romanticize everything, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, like we do to, like you point yeah. out, we we do the same thing today. I think you know, like yeah, yeah, and, um, but yeah, it's, the Victorian mm-hmm. era was kind of the pinnacle of when history was completely real. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's where the confusion around what a claymore and what a broadsword is. Um, you know, what you know, the, all of the different vernacular that we now use in modern context was a lot of it was developed in the Victorian era because they like to play with things in history and rewrite history for their own benefit. Yeah, it's sort of maybe it's the beginning of sort of the early industrial revolution, and people have expendable wealth and extra time and exploring new ideas in different cultures or something. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. How would you explain that? How would you? How would you say? Why why this period of time, I guess, is sort of interesting to me. I suppose it's the, um, you know, the advent of steam power and stuff like that made world travel easier, mm. faster. Yeah. Uh, and so therefore access to information became much faster. Uh, I mean, these days we have the internet, so, you know, trends change within a yeah. week. Um, <laughs> but back then, um, trends would take, you know, 50 to 60 years you know in the in the 16 1700s uh late renaissance you know trends would last decades because word took so long to pass around yeah whereas with the advent of steam travel and stuff like that you you started seeing people being able to cross the atlantic in in you know a week or two rather than you know months and so, therefore, with the, this ready ready access to, to information, the people like to kind of jump from trend to trend. And the way that you jump from trend to trend is find the most interesting thing and latch onto it. And then you want to blow that out of proportion to make it more interesting to the people around you. So, you know, the instead of talking about the, the actual Danish raiders of England and, you know, the, the way that they actually interacted with the people in England, you instead you say, oh, they were giant hulking you know monstrosities with six foot long beards and and horns on their helmets and they carried these mighty double-headed right. battle axes and you know when, <laughs> when the actual truth was that they actually bathed and wore perfume and took great pains to look nice and they ran off with all of the women and that made the men upset so they wrote horrible things about them <laughs> exactly so you know like it, it was it was that sensationalizing of of the of the strange yeah um and because there was so much more information, it became easier. And because the East was so cut off from the West for millennia, you know, like the, Japan didn't really become accessible to the Europeans until the 1500s. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. They, they, they completely 
boarded themselves off from the world. They didn't, um, China didn't have glass until um, like the 16th century. Um, so, you know, they, they were so boarded off from the Europeans that when they finally did start to interact, it was so alien <laughs> that uh, it had to be mystical. Right. Uh, you know, it's, well, yeah, it's as you, like you said, it's maybe sort of the confluence of exposure that wasn't there before to these other cultures and ideas and things. And yet you also probably the average Joe in the early 1800s wasn't terribly well educated. And certainly the science, the scientific <laughs> method is in its infancy, you know, not yeah. a whole lot of a uh, rigorous um, study of Frankly, ideas. It's not much better <laughs> nowadays. Well, yeah, you're probably right, Alex. It's probably true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we're discussing periods that are like pre-germ theory where they still believed that morbid humors caused, you know, (laughs) caused death. You know, they used to bleed people for for having a cold. That's right. Mm. You have ghosts in your blood. You should do cocaine about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. They're all coked up. All of them. That's, why. <laughs> well, that's it. That's, that's why it's all fanciful. They're all high off their heads. It's, it's like right. if your Morphine kid won't go to sleep, you just give them a shot of brandy and send them to bed. Then that's right. <laughs> no. They went from their opium dens dens in the morning. Um, then they got coked up and went to work, and then back to an opium den at, at night. And <laughs> that's it. Entertained all sort of fanciful ideas in the in the interim. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, I, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting topic like around Woods and Damascus and you know all that kind of stuff. And I don't think we'll ever actually get a hard and fast answer. But as far as I'm concerned, I don't think we need to polarize everything. Yeah. You know, most of us know what we're talking about when we say Damascus, right? Uh, right. And if we if we want to say Woods, we say Woods. Um, you know, Peter Peter Burt, who's a friend of mine, and he's been on the show. Um, he makes a lot of woots, and he calls it. Woots. He does. He does. <laughs> that's what I. I just so. at, listening to y'all's podcast. That's the first time I've been introduced to Peter Burt. Now I, I follow him, and I've watched his videos. Uh, he is so fascinating. It's so legit. Those blades he makes are gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely amazing. He is a super talented guy, and he's so sharing with his. Absolutely, he he doesn't seem to hold anything um, back, which is amazing in and of itself. And on that note, um, if anyone's listening and hasn't followed Peter's uh, YouTube channel, he actually does how-tos on making mm. woots. Um, and he goes into the metallurgy and the, the chemistry behind it. So if you're really interested in learning about Woots Damascus, uh, he is probably one of the foremost uh, masters of woots that I would think of right now, including people like Rick Furrer and Kevin Cashin. But uh, Peter's right at the cutting edge, and he's um, doing a lot of videos on how to make it. He's not hiding anything. His yeah. his stuff looks really good. I mean, really good. Yeah, he's, actually, he's somebody really cool um, somebody who follows me is um, I don't don't know if they have in the past, but they've started making a lot of um, woots. Is Aaron Finn at AJF Metalworks on Instagram? Mm-hmm. He's been doing some great stuff making woots uh, ingots. It's really really cool. He's he's got given out a lot of cool tips about it and things. It's it's been interesting to follow along. Yeah, I would love to. Uh, sit through a woot session at some point that'd be just oh mind-blowing yeah yeah i I, i'm determined to one day fly to hawaii and and get peter to 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 make some woots with me he sells uh ingots now and again does he not 
Yeah. He does, yeah. When it, when he has uh, when he has the time to make spare ingots when he, that he's not making for himself, he does sell them. Yeah, yeah. it's fascinating. I I recalled um, you know Verhoeven and Pendre suggesting that they never thought it would, it would be very commercially viable to make and sell woots, but Peters mm-hmm. found a way to to get it cracking. So, well, yeah, I mean, he's he's been kind of. Well, I mean, I, I say he's been kind of lucky, but he's also been kind of the reason that Woots has come back in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, because of the popularization of the argument between Woots' true Damascus and um, and Damascus Steel pat- being patent-loaded, um, he's kind of been able to, you know, monetize that, in that people are all like, Woots is the most amazing steel ever, so now people want Woots' knives, and so... Where do you get woots from? A guy who makes woots. <laughs> I'm interested. Um, I don't want you to put words in his mouth, obviously. But what would what would he say about the argument of it being a um, uber super steel type of thing? Has he ever spoken to that, or did I? Did we ask him that on the show? I can't remember. I, um, I wasn't there for I that know, episode. I know for a fact that um, he doesn't think that it's like the a, a super steel. It's it's a a decent steel, but it's a massive pain in the ass mm-hmm. to work with. Um, <laughs> like it takes uh, really long soak times uh, before you can start forging it, and the dendrites mean that you you know you have cracks and stuff like that if you forge it just a little too hot or a little too cold. It's very finicky, and because it's basically pure carbide, pure pure carbides in a pure iron matrix, like it's not really a high carbon steel right. in the way that we yeah. think of it. Um, it it has a very toothy edge, but it also suffers from chipping and stuff like that because the carbides just pop out of the matrix yeah. so you know like I don't think Peter would ever argue you know not putting words in his mouth obviously I can't remember him ever talking about it um, but I don't think he would ever claim it to be a superior steel to anything that we have now mm-hmm. at least um, and I mean a lot of the historical versions um, were not hardened at all um, they they didn't harden them purely because they were more likely to break if you did because uh you had pure carbide in the matrix which meant that you know and carbide's very brittle um you wanted the blade to be relatively soft to support right <laughs> the, Super the, uh, yeah. the carbide need something bendy something's so, got to give in there that's it so a lot of um a lot of old wood swords that are uh, collected now are very uh heavily sharpened back uh, and that's because, you know, every time they'd use it, the carbides would pop out of the edge and you'd have to sharpen it back a little bit to expose new carbides. High maintenance um, weapons. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, a lot of them are bent and, you know, like they have snake snake bends in them because they've been bent and rebent um, as they've been I don't been think used. I realized that. I'd, um, I'd read a forum post, which you never know what you're getting when you read a forum post, but they... Uh, a friend of this guy's worked in a museum handling Woots pieces, and there had been a Woots dagger that had been dropped, and it just broke when it hit the carpet. And uh, mm. um, so they were that guy got fired. <laughs> yeah, probably. But uh, <laughs> that was their that was their argument against Woots in the, in the setting of this forum, and who knows if that's true. But um, well, yeah, I mean that could have been an instance in which the the Woots was actually heat treated. Yeah. Um, and therefore was quite brittle. Or had extra phosphorus um, or something. Or yeah, or, you know, various impurities. Because, again, they're working with bog iron and then turning it into woods. Um, so you never know the what's same in impurities there. that would 
would exist in a bloomery would exist in the yeah. woods. Um, so yeah, it's 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 really hard to you know come up with a, a hard and fast answer as to the things. I know that a lot of Afghan um, Kanjar daggers, the the curvy ones that you see, uh, were quenched in in air, like high velocity air. Um, <laughs> they used to dig tunnels in a mount in like uh, hills that uh, had a uh, inlet from the bottom and then up the top, and they basically used to just stick it in there the and have up. the wind rush over it, and that was their version of hardening. They used to make a lot of. Uh... <laughs> Uh, they do a lot of smelting that were, were, were there a lot of primitive forges and foundries made that way with the wind tunnel carved in the side of a hill that went up am I making that up yeah the the old Dakota fire holes yeah. trick um, you know using the convection of the the, the tall chimney to create an airflow um, very common method for uh, for early early iron production the um, and good for campfires because it's almost smokeless Oh yeah, it burns so um, efficiently that there's very little smoke. Oh yeah, it burns completely. Yeah, mm. yeah, really hot. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's it's a very interesting topic. Uh, thank you for asking. I'm, 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 we're supposed to be interviewing you, and here you are. Well, I want to pick your brain. I've heard you talk about it. And I think you know more than me, do, and so I'm really interested. It's a very fascinating topic. I'm my my uh, my my Insta messages are always open, and I'm always happy to have a call. Yeah, I'd love that. I need a, I need. A, yes, I it doesn't take much to get Sam to talk about metallurgy <laughs> and or history. And if you combine the two, that's it. Put yeah, put yeah, aside your put aside your weekend. <laughs> well, history is great, though, isn't it? You know, just like oh, the different fantastic. materials bring meaning to a blade. Knowing the history also brings another level of appreciation. And and um, again, trying you can try to mimic techniques or styles and, and understanding how and why things are done. And it's, I think it's fantastic. I would love to. I read about Toledo, the swords in Toledo and Toledo steel at one point, and I would love to try to mimic something like that at some point again i might need to watch someone do a little bit of that first but just having these <laughs> having this understanding of these things really i think brings extra meaning to what you do or it can and uh yeah absolutely i, I mean uh, w- we speak quite a bit on how uh bladesmithing and stuff like that is no longer a, a trade so much is that in that it is an art mm-hmm. form um you know most of us as sole proprietors can't really combat the mass-produced knives that right. come out uh, in price. Even if ours are superior quality in build quality and you know materials, we're still not going to be able to compete on price <laughs> in the market in the big market. So, one of the things we've got to do is aim for artisanry over you know that kind of thing. And part of the art is you know sometimes linking it to history. That's one of my favorite things to do. Um, some people like to invent new shapes and new styles and go really outside the box. Like if you ever look at Kevin Klein's mm-hmm. stuff, um, he's always trying to push the boundaries on <laughs> on things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I find the history of the materials and the history of the build styles and all that kind of stuff to be part of my art. Yeah. What about you, Alex? Are you a student of history at all or? I try to be um, nowhere near the level Sam is. Um, my background's in engineering and psychology, so I sort of look at things from a different perspective. It's more of a um, both the the direct function and the interaction that it has with the person. Yeah, 
It's pretty yeah. it's but I, interesting. I am fascinated by history. I just I don't know where Sam finds the time, frankly, to learn all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> he trolls forums, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yep, forums and books. Lots and lots of forums and books. Yeah. It's really... In- but it's good because I get to send him my uh, history memes. <laughs> <laughs> and he gets them. <laughs> yep, I always appreciate his history memes. Yep. One of, the, one of the interesting things about knives is um, understanding and learning about why people value them and how they value them differently and what you know how they find meaning in uh, a knife and... A, it's always sort of interesting to me having sold knives in a store and talking to a lot of people and then making knives and it's it's really cool that knives mean so many different things to different people and they like them for different reasons and uh, it's just a, it's a well, it's wonderful like thing. you were bringing you were bringing up the importance of the, some of the materials and things. I mean, a while back I did um, probably the favorite video I've ever done was a collaboration between um, Sam was in it, Jay Nielsen was in it, Kyle Roy was in it, Niels Vandenberg was in it. Uh, talking about how scrap steel can be made to make wonderful knives um, and simply because sometimes the this, what you are making it from is important to the person mm-hmm. in a big way or it means something to them and it's like Sam was just saying now we're not a trade anymore, we're an art form and what we're making people come to a custom knife maker because they want a piece of art but what we make if it's made well becomes an heirloom and if it has that story behind it it can literally last for a thousand years i mean there are japanese swords that are a thousand years old that still look like they were made yesterday because they were maintained within a family and and looked after and what we're creating can have that if it means enough if it has enough of that value i mean the the price that is put on something and the value that it has are two very separate numbers Mm. and um it's it's only an artist or an artisan that can instill a thing that is as simple as a knife with that kind of for lack of a better term soul that is going to live on past our lifetime past the lifetime of the person who got it from us and potentially be handed down for generations do you think um you guys do this vocationally i hobby at it so i don't i'm not under the pressure to crack the code as far as selling making and selling how much of that philosophy creeps into what you guys do on a daily basis you know make making the art pieces the quality putting meaning or bringing meaning to everything type of stuff is that is there a balance there is it something you strive for all the time or do you have to edge my answer is going to be very different to sam we have very different approaches (laughs) so i'll let sam go first on that I, I well in my practice I find that there is definitely a balance because I, I do focus on function as well as form um, and you know sometimes you can't put the the you know kind of form front in front of the function uh, I also get custom commissions occasionally which are you know for very functional knives that don't really have any historical you know kind of context when I'm making stuff that I myself just want to make, I normally put the uh, the meaning into it. Um, I, I have historically named a lot of my knives and you know added a story to them for fun. Um, you know, just just trying to make up something because I, I I like stories, I like narratives, and so the idea of having a narrative that goes along with a physical item is is kind of cool. Um, 
<clears throat> but I, you know, I find that sometimes it's the context of who's making it as well as what it is. Like for instance, I would I would love a green beetle knife, you know, because it's a green beetle knife. It's it's made by green beetle. It's it's someone that I've looked up to for a long period of time, and I really enjoy your uh, your style, and I really enjoy your content, and so therefore that knife would have meaning, no matter the, the type of knife, would have meaning purely because of the story that comes with who made it and where I got it from. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I, I think that in some cases, you the context can simply be the person making it, but you also can add context mm. yourself. Well, you have low standards, my, my, my friend, my... but thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I come at it from a perspective of, of marketing. I mean, I worked in marketing for 10 years and the people who come to me wanting an artisanal knife, then they've got a, a budget set for it and everything. They know about knives already and what knives can be. So that's why they've come to me to get a knife like that. Um, but I live in the middle of very deep country. The island that I'm on is very rural. The entire thing is very rural and people want things that work. Right. They want things that work really, really well. And, um, and are cheap, probably, so, probably inexpensive too. Well, that's it, and and basically for me, it's a it's been a uh, long process since coming down here of re-educating people through my marketing to show them what a knife can be, because they're <laughs> not to disparage mass-produced knives, but there are, there are very few mass-produced knives that can beat the performance of a properly made, you know, a bladesmith-made knife from somebody who you know puts a very significant portion of their time to improving their results and doing hardcore testing and learning the metallurgy and things we're not trying to bash things out for the cheapest price possible most of the time we're working for five dollars an hour just to actually get this thing and we take exceptional pride in every piece we do we're not making knives to make knives we're making knives to test ourselves it's a difficult art form to do and so when you see us shooting our knives to split a bullet or hammering our knife through a nail and things like that, it's less about trying to sell them and more about showing, look what I have managed to achieve. Um, and then you sell it on. But getting other people to see that when they're used to just walking in, into a store and spending $15 on a, uh, like a Morikinev you know standard that they can hang off their belt and when it dies in a you know a month they can go and get another one um changing people's minds to show this is a knife that you will hardly have to sharpen let alone buy a new one for <laughs> the rest of your days um is a, is a whole different ball game and then once they actually understand that then they start wanting to have ones that are uniquely theirs uh, and they they start thinking a little bit outside the box it's like well now that the functionality is that durable and it's not something that i have to think of as disposable um why not make it uniquely mine so what do you guys say to people who have an interest in the super steels you know the the particle metallurgy engineered steels i mean how do you mm -hmm. how do you break down that barrier um i i say find a different maker <laughs> I, I don't really do stock removal. I, I forge my blades, and my blades are, are about the history and about you know that kind of thing. And so, if I if they ask for something that I don't specialize in and I'm not comfortable with uh, doing myself, then I will send them to a fellow maker who can. Yeah. Um, if they only want the knife because they heard of the super steel, then I might have the conversation about you know like 
the practical function of the super steel and you know what they're actually going to use it for mm-hmm. um because you know while cpm 3v cpm 154 and all that kind of stuff are, are amazing steels and they do fantastic things if you're not in a situation where you're going to be you know <laughs> using it in a hard use for hours and hours and hours on end without access to a sharpening stone then you know it's really unnecessary mm-hmm. um but yeah, I mean, most of the customers that I have tend to want a knife that's going to tell a story, and um, I find that stainless, for the most part, is relatively soulless, um, because no matter how much you use it, it doesn't really carry a story of where it's been. It doesn't, doesn't patina yeah. up. You want that patina, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't patina up. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, yeah, carry the the marks with it. Whereas you know, carbon steel always does. It means that you have to take more care of it, uh, but that's normally a sacrifice that the people that buy from me, at least, are willing to make. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just one of those things that you, you either choose, you know, like, if you want to go down that road, then that's there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, I don't have the machinery to actually heat treat that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I'd have to send it out for right. heat treating. <laughs> yeah, I did that whole video on, on the where you really need to take your grain structure and the toughness of your knives and things and there are people that you know legitimately want to be able to baton their knife through a 10 penny nail and have it not dull and you know if if you're really working somewhere where you need that then that's that's fine and it is something that you you know you should try and achieve the best possible results you can with your steel but for 99.9 percent of people who are actually ordering a knife or using a knife um, day to day there is a certain threshold of what they actually need it to perform um, and if you're exceeding that then there's, there's, a, there's the world of realism and there's the world of you know right fantasy I mean people hear about these super steels and what they can do and think oh that'd be amazing but they would never ever do anything with the knife that would even come into the realm of what those knives have been designed to do right yeah, and I, at the end, really, W two on its own can perform incredibly well in almost any situation, <laughs> and yet, you know, unless you start getting into high impact sort of knives like choppers and things, you wouldn't use it for. But any sort of duty knife that you're using around a farm or something like that, you know, W two or or fifty two one hundred is a brilliant steel that mm. can withstand some phenomenal uh, thrashing and. Um, yeah, as close as a super steel as I get. Yeah, well, I mean, the closest I've gotten is I'm not even sure if it counts as a super steel because I don't really know much about the steel. Is that uh, Vitoku Two Takefu Special Steel? Um, and I was grinding it, uh, the the bevels on one of those, and I can't remember what caused it to happen, but I slipped, dropped the knife, and it threw from the grinder down and embedded tip first in the concrete floor of my shop, and I pulled it out, and it was fine. Oh my gosh! Are you <laughs> sticking out of the concrete, like just standing up? It was uh, about three million, like a what's that, like a an eighth inch into the concrete. Oh. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I thought, well, that's I've just made a shorter knife, uh, but no, it was fine. <laughs> it was absolutely fine, and I couldn't believe it. But that's the closest I've gotten to. I mean, I was gifted that steel, so I, somebody gave it to me and said, "I'd like to see what you do with it." And um, I made two knives out of it, and it was great and very impressive steel, but give me carbon steels any day i mean the the performance you can get out of 52 100 is is more than enough for any reasonable task for my, yeah yeah i sort of agree with that 99 percent of people should be happy with a, a well heat treated carbon steel knife for a variety of reasons mm. i wonder about in my mind yeah. you know, at some point super steels 
do they exceed the knife form? You know, do they, at what point does it just get, you know, uh, superlative or, or superfluous or meaningless for them to perform much better? I mean, like, like you pointed out, um, what are you really doing with a knife that requires X performance out of the steel? It's, are you, like you said, are you going around chopping bits of copper and, and, uh, cutting, you know, <laughs> pennies and batoning through brass rods and, uh, nails? No, cause that's not what a knife does. There are tools for that and it's not a knife. Um, so yeah, I think it's interesting exactly. at some point there does, you, you do sort of get to the point where, gosh, it's nice and it's fanciful, but, uh, is it necessary? And, uh. I don't know. Mind you, Sam has a, a horror story about an excellent Bowie knife he sold to somebody and then went to their house a while later and found it all detempered, hanging by their fireplace. They'd been using it as a fire poker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't tell that story. <laughs> sad, sad days. <laughs> It happens. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I think that's what drives it from a maker's perspective. A lot of people who swear by these super steels and things is once it leaves my shop, I don't know what's going to happen to it. Um, but there's, I think there's a there's a line that you should hold there. I mean, you got to ask yourself, what are you making knives for? Are you making uh, making art pieces that are going to be heirlooms, or are you going to make things that are going to um, stand up in competition cutting events and things like that. I mean, it's there's two different things, and a lot of they shouldn't be overlap between those. Yeah, and um, I mean, there are makers out there who specialize in using crucible steels and stuff like that, and they do fantastic work. But you'll notice that the majority of them will make stuff like full tang hunters and full tang fighters and stuff like that, and they'll be very bulky and blocky and and built to be bomb proof mm. you know built to be hammered tip first into a concrete wall to be used as a mm. step yeah. <laughs> you know that kind of thing um which is is just not uh mine or alex's style of knife making and so you know most of the people who come to us know what the kind of knives that we are me make are and that's why they come to us um you know so yeah i mean i have no issue with super steel knives but yeah, they're just not my cup of tea. You gotta you gotta do vegan knife making if you're gonna be using those. We like to forge. It's as simple as that. <laughs> I heard Niels <laughs> use that term on y'all's podcast the other day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, was, that was great. Yeah, it's it's it's, be- it's become a mainstay now. I, yeah. <laughs> my guess is he ruffled some feathers, but it's funny. Uh, Probably. Oh, yeah. But that's they're, they're emaciated low protein feathers, so it's it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna drive it in deeper. Oh <laughs> uh, well, you know we can't all be perfect pillars of of the society. <laughs> On that note, um, <laughs> we do have our new Forgecast challenge of the month, um, and it's going straight through December, um, and that is to make a working forged mechanism that makes the use of a spring that you have made. So it's coil spring, leaf spring, whatever. But it's got to be some sort of mechanism. It could be a gate latch. It could be a... Who knows? It could be a cut and shoot if you live in that sort of area that you're allowed to make that sort of thing, unlike Australia where you can't, unfortunately. could be anything. It could be a padlock. Yeah. could be a slip joint folder. It could yeah. be something with a spring in it that you've made. Um, we want to see it. And if you do the challenge, hashtag ForgeCastChallenge on Instagram or Facebook. And um, we, we want to see them. 
So, Steve, thank you very much for coming on. Where can people find you if they're, for some reason, not already following you? Well, on YouTube, the Green Beetle Knives channel, and then uh, Instagram as well, Green Beetle Knives. So, yeah, that's about yeah. it. Yeah, website, greenbeetlegear.com. There's not much on there day to day, but, uh, or that's my email, sorry. Greenbeetlegear.com is the website. But, yeah, I really appreciate yeah. this. You guys, this is a great, uh, a great time. I had a lot of fun. It's awesome. Awesome podcast. No, honestly, thank you so much for taking the time out to, to talk to us. Um, you know, it's really oh, appreciated. Yeah, low-key, we reach out to a lot of people, and, and sometimes we just automatically assume that we're going to get ghosted. Um, this was one of them. But <laughs> Steve just jumped straight back, and he's like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> I was very excited. Oh, yeah, I love it. And that, yeah, that's, that's not a judgment on your character. That was more of a, you're probably too busy to be dealing with people like us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's usually what it is like when you're running we we understand what it takes to run a youtube channel and you've got um such production quality and everything that we know how little time you must have so we very much appreciate you coming on to to have a chat with us you're quite welcome and i I appreciate you guys too it's awesome awesome experience i loved it yeah no worries all right everybody uh if you would like to email into the forgecast ask us a question just hit us at ask.forgecast at gmail.com and if you're looking to find sam you can find me at samtowns bladesmith on youtube instagram facebook etsy redbubble patreon the kitchen sink you can find Alex. I go by Valhalla Ironworks, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram, YouTube, Patreon, Etsy, Redbubble, and Twitch, where I stream my goods. So I do that too as well. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he does. Uh, Occasionally. Anyway, guys, it has been fun. It's been an awesome show, and we'll see you all next week. Bye, guys. Oh!